Again, uh, good morning. As I said, my name is Greg. Um, today I have the privilege of introducing one of my best and dearest friends. Uh, I have known him since the mid-90s, basically, maybe a little bit the mid-mid-90s. I guess that'd be like 97-ish, uh, 98, uh, at Western Washington University. And I can easily say he has been one of the most influential people in my life, both through just the life he lives and the friendship that we have, but also through his teaching, uh, how he uh, responds to the Holy Spirit and God. And so I am super excited to have him here today. Can you please uh, give a welcome to my friend Dan Dameron? Good morning. Um, I'm going to grab this stool here. I, uh, we went to the Bite of Seattle the other day, and... Uh, I ate some shrimp, and I'm a little lightheaded and a little weak, so I'm, I may need to sit down midway. Uh, but uh, hopefully we can, we can move on through that. As an aside, I'm feeling a little bit the same physically as, uh, as I have in extended fasts, and it reminded me of how valuable that is spiritually. So uh, I don't encourage you to get food poisoning. I do encourage you to, uh, to fast as a total side <laughs> issue. Uh, if you'd pray with me before we look at the scripture for the morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the chance to gather. Uh, and we thank you for the chance uh, to enter in and to join the worship that has been going on for hours around the world this morning and that goes on continually around your throne. Uh, we just, just thank you so much for that privilege to be, to be a part of, uh, of something that we don't create, but... Um, but it's something that is, is rich and deep and, and ongoing, and, and we can just be a part of it. We pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning. You would reveal yourself to us in that. In your name. Amen. Uh, most of you probably know, uh, in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John, uh, this morning we'll be looking at the, uh, at the second part of John 4. So that's skipping back a bit from, uh, I think, where you were the last couple of weeks. But it's okay, because as I'll talk a bit, a little bit more later, uh, chronology is not really what John's uh, number one concern was in the organization of his gospel. So uh, I'll be reading from John 4, verses 46 through 54. I'll be reading out of the, uh, out of the ESV. I'm not sure. I think that's what will be behind me, too. But it's okay if there's any word differences. Don't freak out. All right. So he, meaning Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So, uh, as John writes, here Jesus is returning to Cana uh, in Galilee. He'd been in Jerusalem. He took a little detour through Samaria, uh, where we have the um, fairly well-known story of meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, and now he's come back to Cana, where 
John makes a point of saying where Jesus had turned the water into wine, which was his first kind of public sign or miracle. And the first thing that happens when he gets to town is he runs into this uh, basilicos, this uh, royal official. Um, there could be some ambiguity in exactly what this guy's role was, but what, uh, what we can tell from that word is that he is working for Herod. He is uh, an official or a nobleman or a ruler, but he is uh, definitely a Herodian. And you may be familiar with this enough to know that anybody who wasn't working for Herod and was uh, you know, of Jewish descent, Hebrew descent in Judea or Galilee, is not a fan of Herod or uh, anyone who worked for him. So he's, he's either a Gentile working for, uh, for Herod, who was an Idumean. So Idumea was a uh, nearby country and, and a fairly similar kind of interaction between Jews and Idumeans as Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans maybe have a little nod for the uh, most dislike, but uh, nobody likes Idumeans either. Uh, and he had managed, uh, this Herod's father had managed through some political maneuvering to get Caesar to uh, appoint him as an overlord there, and uh, none of the Hebrews were very pleased with that. Or, if he's not a Gentile, even worse, he is a traitor in their minds to his own people. So, uh, a couple weeks back, uh, Greg talked about the interaction with Zacchaeus and how being a tax collector, that meant that, you know, not only was he cheating people uh, by taking more tax than was his due, but also just the fact that he's working for the um, occupying government. The, you know, you have a, a set of overlords that uh, they're, you know, kind of constant rebellion against. So anybody who is profiting from the oppression of their own people is, is going to be unpopular, in fact, despised. So this guy, he's got no, uh, he's definitely not winning. Either he's a Gentile dog, as they said, or he's a, or he's a traitor to them. Now, it says that he's in Capernaum, which is, depending on uh, the commentary I read, ranges from 15 to 25 miles away. And remember, there are no cars. So this is not jumping in your rig and, you know, taking maybe a half hour to get over there. On the other hand, uh, he is a nobleman, so he probably has a good chariot or something like that. So it's, it's not the same as for some of these other people being um, an arduous journey. But this is not something that you undertake lightly like we might uh, these days. What we can tell from this is that if Jesus is arriving in Cana and somebody's coming from 25 miles away, word is starting to get around. It may be that uh, word has gotten around in Galilee because of the turning water into wine. Um, it's hard to say how well known that would be. It was at a private event, so maybe people don't know. On the other hand, uh, a private event, a first century Jewish wedding, means that most of the town is getting drunk together. So there's a lot of people. Uh, on the other hand, it also says that only the servants were really witness to that. So it could be part of that, but I would say more likely it's because of the signs that Jesus performed in Jerusalem. So he's gone down to the, to the capital. He's done a lot of stuff, in that, and that word has kind of preceded him back to Galilee. It's not specified what he had done there, but most likely it's a lot of healings, and therefore that's why this guy um, would make this trip to meet Jesus. I think it's interesting the way that this official asks Jesus to come down. He doesn't demand or pressure him. He, you know, he is a guy with uh, 
a good measure of political power, and that is going to be backed by a decent measure of Roman military power. But um, he doesn't try to throw his weight around. It's reminiscent for me of the story of the centurion in Matthew 8, and I'll just read that quickly. Um, when he, meaning Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Um, so there's a similarity in outcome for these guys, but I think it's, it's more impressive that these guys who had political and military power treated Jesus with a lot of respect when those with religious power who are supposedly, at least at the beginning, on the same side as Jesus uh, really did not show him respect or, or showed a, a mitigated kind of respect. So Rich talked about uh, Nicodemus a few weeks back. And so Nicodemus starts out, we know that you're from God. And yet, I'm going to meet with you at night and not let everybody know it because I can't really afford to be seen with you. Uh, another time, Jesus was invited to be the guest of honor at a Pharisee named Simon's house. Uh, he invites him to be the guest of honor, and yet he does not do any of the traditional, just kind of standard host duties. Doesn't give him the kiss of welcome, doesn't wash his feet, you know, kind of just the basic things that you would do when you have a guest. These guys who have um, maybe less reason to understand the respect due and more reason to feel like they could throw their weight around, instead come to Jesus uh, in a supplicant and respectful way. I think that's impressive. Now, Jesus responds with what sounds like a rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. That seems pretty harsh. I come up to you, I say, hey, my son is at the point of death. Oh, man, if you don't see miracles, you won't believe. This is, um, I, th I think in, in earlier times when I encountered this, it, it was hard for me to take, and uh, it, this reminds me of when Jesus was talking to uh, a Syrophoenician woman. So this is Matthew, or this is Mark, rather, 7, 24 through 30. It says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. When you read commentaries on either of these passages, there's a lot of uh, disagreement. Some people um, present uh, both of these statements as a test for the person asking uh, for help. A lot of people also say it's, it's not so much about the person who's asking, it's, it's kind of a test for the onlookers. Uh, in 
in the case of our passage this morning, for the, the crowd that's kind of around as he enters Galilee. It says that this time when he came back, you know, he's got a little bit of fame and there's, there's some crowds that have come. Uh, in the other case, for the disciples who thought they were getting a little time away with Jesus and instead you have this Gentile interfering. I tend to think it's maybe a little bit of both. I think that it is a challenge to the asker, but perhaps with a bit of a wink to them because he is respecting the, uh, you know, as by the time we get to the end of the encounter, you can see that he's respecting the way that they've come and the uh, approach that they've had, and it's more uh, of a poke at, at those around. So to this guy who clearly does believe, I'm going to challenge you, but for the rest of you, I know that you've only come out here because nobody's invented cable TV yet, and you need something to do besides watch crops grow or uh, your pots dry. Um, this is a, a place where I, th- I think it's impressive that Jesus is able to um, use the cultural prejudices of his audience to, to make a point. The guy does not uh, rise to the bait of, you know, he doesn't get mad at Jesus saying this. He doesn't say, no, I, I'm coming, I'm serious. He, he moves right past that. All he says is, Lord, come down before my child dies. Um, much like the, the Syrophoenician woman, he's not standing on his ego. He's not getting offended. He says, uh, it seems to me, man, I don't have time for that. I've got nowhere else to go if my child is going to live. Much like Martha talked about last week when Jesus gave the, the hard teachings, and he's like, are you going to leave? Well, maybe we would like to, but there's nowhere else. Uh, and that's the place where, um, where this guy, this father, comes. I've got nowhere else to go. All I care about is my son being healed. Now, Jesus doesn't come. You know, the, the original request was that Jesus would come down and heal the boy, he doesn't do that. And some point out that there's even an ambiguity in the wording of his, uh, of his saying that he will be healed. So um, in this translation, it says, go, your son will live. Um, a lot of commentators point out that the, the straight translation would be, go, your son lives. Um, you know, somebody could take that as like, well, he's alive. You better go see him while you got your time. I don't think that's the case, though, because this guy leaves pretty confidently. He, at least, doesn't interpret it that way. Um, and one of the ways we can tell is that he doesn't go straight home. So if he's 20, 25 miles away, and the servants come to find him to tell him that the sun is getting better, but that's the next day. If, if the seventh hour is 1 o'clock and you've only got 20 miles and you think that this might be the last day that you've got with your son, you're going to be able to do that, especially if you have uh, a chariot, which he should have had. So uh, he could have made it back, and apparently he decides that it's, he has enough confidence in what Jesus is t- telling him that he's going to spend the night because he doesn't want to be on the road in the darkness and, and maybe be attacked by bandits, uh, or that he's got business to take care of in Cana. So as soon as he has this encounter, they tell him what time. It says that he believed, uh, and believed standing on its own, not believed uh, that Jesus had healed the boy or any specifics, but a general belief, which uh, as we encounter that term in the Gospels and more particularly in, in John, what that means is that he, he put his faith in. He, he gave his allegiance to Jesus. He became a believer in him 
uh, and not just him, but his whole household. So we see kind of a progression here from um, having some hope, enough hope to travel uh, on a pretty imp uh, impressive trip to go ask for help uh, to believing that the guy doesn't even have to uh, come and be present to heal his son uh, to now putting his faith in and, and not just his own faith, but, but bringing his family and, and the household of a royal official would be him, his family, and to a certain amount enforced upon his, his servants. That this is what we're, this is the religious practice we're following now. And then John wraps up this part by saying this is the second sign when Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. So he, he starts this, this story by talking about this is Cana, this is where the water was turned into wine, and then he wants to make sure that you see that. So he is, in, in doing that, he's really making a point of drawing a connection between those two uh, signs or miracles that Jesus has done. And I think that the reason that he's doing that is he's trying to tell us Jesus is present, active, and engaged across the whole spectrum of human experience. So in the first one, um, maybe doesn't feel as pressing, but here's Jesus at a, at a wedding, at a time of celebration and joy. And in the second one, here's Jesus in a, for any of you who have kids, you can imagine the terror and the sorrow that just would be all through you if you thought that your child was about to die. And throughout that and anything in between, Jesus is there. What does it mean for John to be the one who writes this story? John is not just putting down everything on paper that he can remember that Jesus did. In fact, the last, uh, the last verse of the book, in 21, 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John was written quite a bit after the other Gospels, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, and tradition says that the bishops of Asia Minor, uh, John at the end of his life was living in Ephesus, that these bishops asked him to write his Gospel, uh, you know, now kind of in his old age, to combat some heresies that had, had come up. So John here, uh, you know, apparently until that point, he had felt pretty okay with the three Gospels that had already been written, but at this point... Um, he decides, you know, some time has passed and there's maybe some, um, some misunderstandings or outright heresies that have come up. And so John works to a, a plan. He selects events and interactions um, that Jesus had with people in order to make certain points. And it's a very directed uh, essay, if you will, uh, to address specific misunderstandings. I think there are two points that Jesus is selecting. Um, as, as we look at this chapter, uh, I think you should take both uh, encounters that Jesus has in it as, as part of a, a single dealer point that Jesus is making. Um, the first point that Jesus is trying to make with the encounter of the official and the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well is that Jesus was and is continually looking out for the other. So, this official, as I said, he's either a Gentile dog or he's a traitor, agent of the despised Herod. The Samaritan woman 
is a Samaritan and a woman and a woman with a checkered past. These are the most other examples of which a younger John could have ever conceived. When we think about John and uh, his, his life, think about that this is, the, this is the John who, along with his brother, asked Jesus if they would be allowed to call down fire on a Samaritan village who they felt had not been hospitable enough. John tried to stop someone who was casting out demons. It doesn't say that, he, that they, the guy was trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. It says that a guy was casting out demons and healing in Jesus' name. And John says, yeah, we made him quit because he's not one of us. This is a John who, not surprisingly with his uh, cultural background, was very focused on not them, but us. Jesus interacted with and served people that John could not have previously conceived of being worthy of the kingdom of God. Jesus is interacting with and serving people today that we couldn't previously have conceived of being worthy of the kingdom of God. John very intentionally in in these passages is challenging us with these stories of how Jesus challenged him. On whom would we rather call down fire than offer the love of Christ? We don't really need the Holy Spirit to love and serve those that we like. Well, actually, we probably do, even with the, to serve the people that we like. But we definitely need it for those that we find other. In John's life, he went from being called by Jesus one of the sons of thunder, you know, somebody who's flying off the handle, to being known for whenever they would, they would wheel him out. He was a really old man. They are keeping him in some back room somewhere, and then they would get together for a gathering like this, and they'd bring him out, and they're like, hey, everybody, it's the Apostle John, and he'd be like, my children love one another, and that's all he would say, and then they put him back in his closet. What does it take to be somebody who says, can I call down fire and burn up this whole town? To say, love one another. The second point that I think John is trying to make with these stories is that Jesus has his own plans and his own ways of going about things. And this was perhaps just as hard of a lesson for John to learn as that uh, Jesus was going to extend the kingdom to people that he wouldn't have thought should be in the kingdom. Probably for any of us who have been around the church for a while, we, we love to point out um, how slow on the uptake the first disciples were. I've always enjoyed the passage where Jesus says, are you so dull to the twelve? Because that's just like... Such a great shutdown. Like, well, we don't know that. Are you so dull? Um, Greg talked about the feeding of the 5,000 a few weeks back. And an interesting thing is a short time after the feeding of the 5,000, there was another time where there's, it says there were about 4,000. And Jesus again says, boy, we've got to get these people some food. And the 12 say, well, how would we do that? And I'm sure Jesus was like, you were there like weeks ago. When there were more people. Jesus had multiple predictions of his crucifixion. He would say, just flat out, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to be crucified and dead. And they would go, huh, what do you think he means by that? I don't know. John and his brother James asked Jesus if they could be on his right and left hands when he came into his kingdom. So, you know, Number, the number one and two guys after Jesus. And when he did not say yes, they went and got their mom 
to come and ask, Jesus, can my sons be on your right and left hand? Like John, we often see only one way that Christ might deal with our circumstances. There's an old joke uh, about a guy living in an area, and, he, and they announce there's going to be a big flood. Everybody has to evacuate. And so he, he sits in his house and he says, Lord, I have great faith in you. Protect me. Save me from this flood. Uh, and as he's wrapping up praying, a big four-wheel drive truck drives through the, you know, just the beginnings of the flood waters and says, hop in the back. We'll drive you to safety. He's like, nope, nope, I'm good. I prayed. I have faith. God's going to save me. The waters rise. He's got to get up a little higher. And uh, some people come by in a boat. They're like, hop in. We'll take you to safety. No, I'm all right. I have faith. God's going to save me. The waters continue to rise. He has to climb up onto the roof of his house. And a helicopter comes by, a coast guard. And they're like, we'll lower a thing. Put it around yourself. We'll, we'll take you to safety. I'm fine. I have faith. God's going to save me. And then he drowns. He gets to heaven and, God's, and he says to God, you said that anything I asked for, you would answer. Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent you a truck and a boat and a helicopter. What do you want? Unlike the centurion, this official came thinking that Jesus needed to come physically to heal his son, and he came thinking that he needed to hurry, that he needed to heal him before he died. With the benefit of being, you know, just reading these stories and it being a long time later, we can say, well, of course, you know, Jesus doesn't have to physically be there. We can say, you know, if we look at another place, Jesus can heal the, raise the dead as easily as healing the sick. That's not an easy thing to think in the heat of the moment. Have you ever had an experience like this where you're like, God, this is, this is critical. This is happening right now. Why, why aren't you fixing this? How long are we willing to pray about something that seems very important to us before we give up? How many times are we willing to ask before we think, well, I guess, I guess he's not listening? One of the things that I say most often to my son Jake, who's six, is, hey, you don't make the plans. He, uh, he is constantly saying, well, we got to do this. And I'm like, no, you, we don't have to do it that way. I know what you want ultimately, but you don't have the, you don't have the information to know, how, you know what else is going on. And it's not your resources that are going to be used. You know, for example, he thinks that we should eat out every single night. Yeah, but are you paying? No. Um, he doesn't have the information. He doesn't have the resources that are going to be used to do it. And even if he did have both of those things, he doesn't have the experience to best apply the info and resources that he does have. Well, we have a much bigger information and resource and experience gap between us and Jesus than any adult child gap could be. I don't know what each of you is going through. I would say that we never really know what anybody else that we run into is going through. But Jesus knows. He's got a plan. It is to prosper and not to harm you. And it is probably going to be radically different than what you think needs to happen to solve it. I have a, question, a couple of questions I'd like you to either put in your phone or write in the notes portion of your bulletin. They're up here. Um, who is too other for you to love and serve in your own strength, in your own personality, in your own uh, cultural milieu. And second, this, this big, long, multi-parter, 
What is God doing or not doing in your life that doesn't fit with your expectations? And how are you reacting to that? How do you think you should be reacting to that? I'll give you a couple of minutes to, to write those down. I know it's real easy up here. I just read it once and I'm like, yeah, you should have that. But um, yeah, please take a minute and you know, even if it's just a couple words, you don't have to write out a whole uh, paragraph about those things, but, but think about those um, so that you can be processing that when I make my next comments. Something I, I think is interesting and significant is that what I had to say this morning seemed to fit very well with what the One Life staff have been saying since this series started. But I didn't listen to those uh, podcasts until I had my outline pretty much set. So I think something's going on here. I think, I think God is doing something specific for this part of his body. Um, and I think that as a group, maybe at that all-church meeting that was in the uh, announcements, that that's something that you guys need to figure out. What, what is God calling this particular part of his body to? Whoever you thought of as your other, in question number one, God is calling you to love and serve them. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to like fly to Syria and directly serve ISIS. But I do think it means that the way that works out is going to be different than what you would expect, different than what you would have thought would be asked of you. And I think whatever your answer to question number two, whether or not you are reacting the proper way, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are his. And the way that you respond is not going to change that. But you can hop in the truck and you can meet Jesus along that track of doing the, the really cool things that he's laid out for you to do. Uh, or you can not take the truck and you can drown and meet him a lot faster than either one of you might have liked. We are not... Uh, John is not concerned about uh, salvation here. He's concerned about becoming more like Jesus. John was transformed from somebody who literally wanted to burn people to death to someone who said almost nothing but love one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that you transform us. Um, that you take the parts of uh, whatever we were, 
uh, from our own personality, from, from our upbringing, and you make something, uh, something better that doesn't ignore those parts, but you do cool things with us. You do amazing things through us. And so I pray that you would help us to get on board with your plans that seem uh, like they don't work. With our, with our amount of information, our amount of experience, that the ones that we can't uh, figure out, um, I pray that you would help us to get on board with anyway. And that the people that you put in front of us who um, maybe it ends up feeling fun and exciting and maybe it feels terrible um, to interact with, that you would give us the strength and the love to do that anyway. And I thank you that you um, loved and served us when we were not in and our ourselves worthy for you to uh, enter under your roof, have you enter under our roof? In your name, Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?